Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Last week, we reported that Washington State had banned nonprofits and community groups from sending books into prisons. In the intervening week, an outpouring of protest forced the state prison system to cancel the new policy. Despite this small but important victory, organizers are pushing ahead with plans for a mass demonstration today in Seattle. Books to Prisoners shared this statement online explaining the need for further steps. Hi all, the Washington Department of Corrections just published a memo to update its used publications policy. After review, we find that it is insufficient and leaves plenty of need for negotiation with the DOC during our scheduled Friday meeting. Our goal is not just to restore access for Books to Prisoners Seattle, but for all concerned community groups who share the mission of providing quality, free books to prisoners in Washington. On page two, for example, the DOC has explicitly written that the practice of allowing for each facility superintendent to approve or deny nonprofit vendors will continue. This is an example of a policy which has caused plenty of frustration over the past years, as the DOC heads have used it as a basis to encroach even further on the abilities of prison book programs to send books. We are very happy that the first steps are being taken, but there's still a lot of work to ensure that prisoners retain necessary access to books. Earlier this week, in the DeKalb County Jail in the Atlanta metro area, prisoners succeeded in sneaking out photographs documenting the deplorable conditions they face, along with photos of signs expressing their demands for concrete improvements. One sign said, please help, we dying, need food. In response, outside supporters and family members have called a noise demonstration at the jail today. We hope to have more updates on this situation for next week's episode. Up next is a brief conversation that was sent to us by Rust Belt Abolition Radio, in which a prisoner at the Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Michigan speaks to her experience with a recent scabies quarantine at the facility. This call is now being recorded. Okay, hi, this is Tamara Washington, 486-364, calling from Huron Valley. And my experience with the scabies quarantine is that it was an utter waste of time. Ever since word leaked, we would all quarantine. I prepared for the day, folding all my clothing, placing items in separate small bags, towels, sheets, underwear, shirts, and pants, knotting each bag so nothing got in or out. Over a week went by before it actually went down. Many people hid food, coffee, or hygiene items. Me, I decided to tough it out and actually follow the rules and instructions given. 96 hours. I can make it. Three meals a day and a shower, county style. I can do it. Nine hours in, I was starving, ready to pop the locks. So sad I didn't hide any coffee, deodorant, or a few snacks. We were given daily instructions that always contradicted previous ones. Chaos best describes the first two days. The first 24 hours, meals were served in the units. We didn't even get sports eating cold food with our hands like savages just to stop the hunger pains. And for what? I did not have a rash, itch, nor was I diagnosed with scabies, forced to take 18 pills because of my body mass, 
threatened with segregation if I refuse, wrongfully convicted, and treated inhumanely throughout this conviction is even a bigger pill to swallow. Round two of the alleged vaccine ran a bit smoother. Nevertheless, 18 more pills, headaches, diarrhea, and intense itching. I didn't itch before the pills. Now I can't stop. Missouri death row inmate Russell Bucklew petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to prohibit him from being executed by lethal injection because of a health problem, cavernous hemangioma. According to his lawyers and medical experts, if Bucklew is executed by lethal injection, for several minutes he will choke on his own blood before dying while the tumor is growing in his throat and elsewhere rupture. The court's right-wing majority decided, 5-4, to four, that Bucklew can be executed by lethal injection. Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion, said, quote, The Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution against cruel and unusual punishment does not guarantee a prisoner a painless death, unquote. Gorsuch also suggested that he accepted right-wing Justice Clarence Thomas's view that cruel and unusual punishment should be seen only as pain caused intentionally. Death penalty opponents were outraged by the decision, saying it amounts to nullifying the Eighth Amendment and destroys protections against torture in the Constitution. Gorsuch's opinion will not only force Bucklew to undergo a painful death, but will also weaken the Eighth Amendment's protection for other death row prisoners in the future. This week, we have a conversation between Toussaint Lossier and Nicole Siegel. This is part one of a series in which we hear Lossier, author of Rethinking the American Prison Movement, speak to Nicole Siegel about his research while writing his book, in which he builds a cohesive picture of the long history of resistance to slavery and incarceration. In this episode, we hear him speak about forms of resistance during the so-called workhouse period of incarceration, from approximately 1865 to 1940, the post-slavery Jim Crow period, during which prison served largely as a method of forcibly extracting labor from recently freed slaves. There was so much that we didn't know about the history of prison organizing. Mm -hmm. um, we really saw this as an opportunity to kind of cohere and um, compile as much of that history together uh -huh. and not only like like lay it out in an encyclopedic kind of way like blah 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 but really try to give us a greater sense of like what has been the dynamic really between the social movement activity of organizing um, and um, strikes and revolt that's kind of characterized the, the long history of the prison movement um, but also the kind of uh, give-and-take relationship between that activity and the way in which prisons themselves have changed over time. Um, because really trying to think about organizing in and of itself is, is one thing, but to really have a sense of how to organize strategically in the context that you're in is as, if not more, important. So really having a sense of kind of like what, what that past history has been felt like would be really important to kind of set the stage for um, really strategic work in that direction going forward, yeah. especially at a moment that we seem to find ourselves in, which, which is one of kind of renewed um, struggle taking place behind bars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right, and that's, that's very encouraging to think mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And um, something that you just pointed out is that, in fact, the prison has been reshaped by prisoners' activism. Mm -hmm over the years, and that's something that you go through in mm -hmm. different chapters of this book. Exactly. I think that's one of the things that's most interesting to note is that uh, the prisoners' rights movement has been effective, has been consequential exactly. 
exactly. or or not the prisoners rights movement actually because you make a distinction mm-hmm. between the prison movement mm-hmm. and prison reform or prisoners rights right sure. so so i'm misspeaking in a way but could you explain what is the difference between the prison movement on the one hand which is what you're writing about yeah. and prison reform or prisoners rights yeah so there's a way of talking about the prison movement as kind of what took place during the 60s and 70s with people like George Jackson with um, rebellions like what took place in Attica in 1971. And we took some liberty in terms of saying we should really talk about the prison movement as the decades leading up to that moment, um, the way in which really the really the various different waves of struggle that set the stage for that kind of moment that sort of stands out in our minds in a lot of ways, as well as the various different forms of organizing, legal activity, and so on that took place after mm-hmm. that's what seems to kind of often been, often, what is often looked like, looked at as a watershed moment in terms of prisoner activity and organizing. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, Setting the long stage the of long the prehistory. Stage, yes, the, mm-hmm. long, the long view. So we're sort uh-huh. of the long yeah, view school yeah. of the prison movement. And that uh-huh. was a way of trying to really... Um, give us a deep history of what's been going on behind bars and um, one in which you can see a lot more significant change over time, especially as I was saying earlier in this relationship between the sort of institutions themselves and the sort of social movement activity. And when we talk about prison movement, we're thinking very much about the various different forms of um, individual uh, protest, um, legal activity, and so on, as well as more collective forms of struggle. Um, And really trying to draw, again, a little bit of a wider net Mm -hmm. to understand how those individual acts of resistance can feed into collective struggle, really so we can get a big picture sense of things. Because at the end of the day, one of the things that we were most concerned about is that for those of us who um, consider ourselves uh, prison abolitionists, Mm -hmm. uh, activists, concerned citizens, what have you, um, we really don't know this history. This was our attempt to kind of make an effort towards thinking about how these different pieces fit together. So you begin this book in 1865, Mm -hmm. the end of the Civil War, of course, a terrifically consequential year Mm -hmm. and a traditional kind of axis for U.S. history. There's the before and there's the after. Sure. And uh, so what is it about the end of the Civil War that sets the scene for the American prison movement? Yeah, I think um, the end of the Civil War really um, moves the um, the question of incarceration in a much more substantial way from the sort of margin to the center of um, questions of social control in the United States, right? You have the end of slavery, and in many ways, especially in the South, um, as it relates to African Americans, prison becomes, for sort of forms of incarceration, become the means by which... Um, Various different aspects of Jim Crow, um, the Jim Crow system are are um, are worked are worked out both for black men and for black women, mm-hmm. and so one of the things that we wanted to do was um, mark that as a key point of transition, right? At the end of sort of formal legal chattel slavery and um, the beginning of what people have referred to as a system worse than slavery, so on and so mm-hmm. forth, in terms of the convict lease system, and do what only has come up in recent scholarship, which is talk about the convict lease system not as this incredibly uh, exploitative, deadly, racist, oppressive system, 
but talk about it as a contested system. So really look mm -hmm. at the ways in which those who are held in bondage, as well as those outside concerned citizens, so on and so forth, also sought to bring it in, really sought to abolish the comic league system. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to market, not just raise awareness about it as a key aspect of the, the way in which Jim Crow operated, but also talk about how it was brought to an end. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. we, that's really why we chose to start the book off with that. Mm -hmm. that. That's terrific because what you're doing is you're beginning with mm -hmm. the abolition of slavery, which was a great victory for sure. the opponents of slavery, including mm -hmm. um, the people who were themselves enslaved. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so when you talk about the way you guys talk about it in this book, from chattel slavery mm -hmm. to prison slavery, mm -hmm. you're also pointing out that people involved in that system, including mm -hmm. allies on the outside, mm -hmm are the ones who did mm -hmm. bring about the end of one system and who can bring mm -hmm. about the end of another. Exactly. Yeah. One, one thing I'd like to say just in a broad sense mm -hmm. is that we highlight three different phases of the way in which our incarceration has been carried out. We yeah. look at the prison as kind of, basically that the um, that one of the ways that we can really mark the influence of the prison movement is looking at the changes in terms of the function of prison. Mm -hmm. um, and the three functions that we really foreground are the workhouse, That's the right. big house, and the warehouse. Part of what also becomes important about beginning with the convict lease system is that it, as much as it is um, important in its own right in terms of the impact that it has on African Americans in the South, that there's also a, a connection between the way in which the convict lease system in the South operates and the way in which Northern um, prisons also operated in terms of this kind of workhouse mentality. Mm -hmm. So really trying to say that even though there's, there's significant regional differences, that there's also a common thread that connects seemingly disparate parts of the country in terms of the way in which incarceration is operating. Just mm -hmm. to um, mm -hmm. make sure that uh, I've got it right. So the workhouse mm -hmm. is when people are put to work. Mm -hmm. And that's the system of convict labor that lasts from the end of the Civil War yeah. through about 1940, begins to be dismantled in the yeah. post-World mm -hmm. post War II period. Sure. And then the big house is the rehabilitative prison, exactly. right? Yeah. Okay, and that lasts until when? That lasts until about the 1980s. Okay. Um, and that's... What we argue is that there's the sort of wave of prison building that comes during the course of the 1980s and 1990s, uh -huh. and even through the 2000s, is the construction of the sort of warehouse model. And mm -hmm. that varies between the sort of Pelican Bay, 23-hour-a-day um, solitary mm -hmm. confinement yep. institutions to the sort of um, Cochrane, large-scale, maximum, medium, sometimes low-security facilities that are constructed and built to house large numbers of people, will employ um, those who are imprisoned in helping to maintain the facility itself as well as in some industries. But the real function of what is being done, the way the prison itself is built, and mm -hmm. also the way in which it's managed, is less so in terms of trying to um, uh, get prisoners to labor as much as possible, and more so in terms of trying to find ways to um, effectively uh, hold them captive, incapacitate them. Idle. Idle, exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. So in this period of the roots from 1865 to mm -hmm. 1940, yeah. we're in the period of the workhouse. Yes. Exactly. All right. Fantastic. And so the, the convict lease system, system of convict labor, mm -hmm. 
is um, so one of the sites of resistance. Exactly. And so that's how um, there's outside opposition from unions, whether those are miners unions, whether those are craft unions in the north. Opposition comes because there's a way in which uh, at a particular moment in the late 1800s, early 1900s, prison labor is being seen as a being in competition with um, quote-unquote free world labor. Um, and so that's one of the sites of resistance in that it's not necessarily an attempt to get rid of prisons altogether, or even in some instances get rid of the workhouse form of prisons, but to really cut down on the degree to which prisoners are being used, used to kind of undercut the wages, the working conditions of free world laborers. Mm -hmm. Can you um, tell us a story from the book mm -hmm. that illustrates this dynamic of the opposition of sure. laborers on yeah. the outside to convict labor? Yeah, the craziest example is in Tennessee. There was a Tennessee coal company, the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, that sought to use convict laborers as strike breakers uh -huh. during the course of a coal miner strike in 1891, where the coal miners union was faced with the prospect of convicts being brought into and worked in the mines as strike breakers. You know, this was a kind of a, a particular period of militant labor struggle. So there's not only a strike taking place, but there's shootouts between the company, the company goons, and the workers as well. Wow. And um, they actually stop the train that brings the convict laborers, that's bringing the convict laborers into the mining area, take all the convicts off the train. I think in one instance, it's they burn the train. In another instance, they kind of put them on another train and send them back where they came from. And um, it it's a moment, not necessarily of like labor solidarity, but definitely a recognition of in the course of this broader labor struggle of the way in which um, those who are being incarcerated were being used to undercut, pitted against other working class people. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they they weren't necessarily operating from an abolitionist perspective, right? right. They weren't necessarily like right. we're gonna we're gonna free all of you prisoners because you shouldn't be prisoners in the first place. Right. But they were adamantly against the way in which prisoners were being used to undercut not only their ability to strike, but also you know a threat to their employment, their uh, potentially higher wages and better working conditions. They had such a clear vision of that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if that vision could be rekindled now, because yep. it's still so relevant, um, exactly. we could generate a little more of that energy and maybe this time channel it into actual solidarity exactly. and abolitionism. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what about uh, the anti-lynching movement? So the anti-lynching movement is another aspect of this period where we see a movement largely led by women, uh, both black women and white women, that's attempting to push back against criminalization and stigmatization of black men, the way in which lynching is being used as a justification for a particular form of um, racist patriarchy, particular idea of white male masculinity, mm -hmm. and uh, the way in which these movements both on the part of white women and on the part of black women, make some headway in terms of undercutting the prevalence of lynchings within the South and also 
begin to call into question the use of convict labor at the same time. So one of the things that we try to dig into is not just figures like Ida B. Wells, uh -huh. but some of the organizations like the Negro Club Women's Organizations uh -huh. that are inspired by her more prominent activity. And the way in which everything from getting county sheriffs to pledge not to release jailed suspects to mobs, like lynch mobs, mm -hmm. to um, passing anti-lynching ordinances at the county and the state level have an impact in terms of decreasing the number of lynchings that are taking place definitely by the time that we get into the, the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we try to mark is the way in which these movements, again, have an impact not just on the sort of extra-legal violence of lynchings, but also on the convict lease system as well, too. Yeah. And um, also, lynchings mm -hmm. are uh, one of the ways in which um, intimidation happens mm -hmm. and in which people are coerced mm -hmm. to submit to to being policed and jailed yep. and so on, right? So it's another mm -hmm. another way in which an anti-lynching mm -hmm. movement is mm -hmm. an anti-prison movement yep. is in removing this action at the extreme violent end of the continuum mm -hmm. of state violence mm -hmm. on which prisons also are fixed. I think one of the things that we, at the same time, one of the things that we tried to pay uh -huh. attention to is the way in which um, reform campaigns that, have, that don't have this comprehensive uh, field of vision and it varied in the course of the anti-lynching anti movements and uh -huh. other movements as well, would win reforms that decrease the prevalence of one aspect of extra legal violence or state violence, but then help the, at the same time kind of legitimated other aspects mm. of it. So you see yeah. um, these movements being successful in terms of reducing the... Um, the scope of lynchings, but also um, uh, at the same time, not necessarily challenging, being as effective in, in challenging the prevalence of the death penalty, right? And the uh, way in which the death penalty, by the time that we get through the 20s and the 30s, replaces lynchings in some right. parts of the South. Right, right? because the anti-lynching campaigns use a law and order rhetoric, yeah, which exactly. is one really and interesting... And same thing with the comic lease system, and that in some ways these movements become, gain some success in terms of undercutting the way in which prisoners under the conflict lease system would be leased out, right? They wouldn't be managed by the state. They would be leased out to private corporations. Mm -hmm. There would be you know, hardly any accountability to, for the way in which those pri private, uh, private corporations would be responsible for housing, feeding, um, uh, securing those that they held in chains. And as these movements become successful in undercutting that particular system, we see that system being replaced, especially in states like Georgia and Alabama, with the chain gang system. And so mm -hmm. um, right. one of the dangers that we at least try to highlight is the way in which reform-oriented movements that don't have a very critical analysis or a, a, an, an idea of how the particular thing that they're fighting against fits within a broader system, like a more systemic analysis, at times can be successful in reinforcing a particular form of social control, but just under a different guise. Mm -hmm. Are some of the defense campaigns that you talk about here mm -hmm. guilty also of that restricted vision? The campaign on behalf of Sacco and Vanzetti, of the Scottsboro Boys? We don't really approach those campaigns, I think, as critically. Uh -huh. um, much of what we just try to highlight is the way in which um, broader socialist, anti-imperialist, anti-war campaigns 
don't just stay in their lane in terms of fighting against World War One or um, uh, you know the power of uh, corporations in the early 20th century, but have an analysis that brings them and a form of solidarity that brings them into dealing with questions of prison at the same time. And that maybe a long way of answering a question, but that part of what we what we're trying to highlight is less a deficiency and a more degree to which today what we can oftentimes think of a defense campaign can end up being something that's relatively marginal, right? Um, that's only concerning people who are already right attenuated to the problem of prison. And at this moment, the opposite was true. These mm -hmm. were large scale defense campaign, you talk about Sacco and Vendetti, you talk about the Scottsboro Boys, these are mass social movements in and of themselves, mm -hmm. calling for the defense of these individuals that are led by people who are first and foremost concerned about, you know, working class power, are concerned about uh, the evils of war, and it's in fighting against the way in which um, prison is being used as a way to repress, the more sort of... Um, repress individuals, uh, sometimes movement activists, that we see those movements pivoting towards dealing with the problem of incarceration. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, so what about this other, um, on a completely different level, this mm -hmm. other question of infrapolitics? Yeah. What are infrapolitics? So infrapolitics is us cribbing from uh, Rama D.G. Kelly and now, and the analysis of a number of other scholars, part of what they call our attention to is not simply the sort of broad, large-scale movements, but the everyday forms of resistance mm -hmm. that um, become the the kind of building blocks upon which broader struggles are built. And is, so, are they called infrapolitics because they're like infrastructure, so they're they're building blocks? No, the way they they the way it's defined is it's. Um, it's almost like infrared, like mm -hmm. they operate on a wavelength that we're not often attuned to. Uh -huh. And yeah, it's unless yeah. we sort of have the right glasses on or something to that effect mm -hmm. yeah. that we really see what's taking place. So part of the argument is here um, in, in being intentional about examining infrapolitics, we have a way of thinking about um, the forms of resistance that are taken up uh, that are would not otherwise... Uh, hit our radar if we weren't if we weren't looking for them. That goes from um, black women who were held in convict lease camps who would burn their clothes as a form mm -hmm. of protest, uh -huh. right? To laborers in the Texas prison system who, years after the sort of convict lease system was done away with, but you still had extreme forms of pretty harsh labor conditions that they had to endure. Uh, working in the fields um, in and around Tex some of Texas's largest prisons, you had this phenomenon of heel stringing, where prisoners would actually cut their own Achilles tendons wow. as a way, or mutilate themselves, uh -huh. basically, as a way to, to be able to avoid having to work 10, 12 hours a day in incredibly um, difficult conditions in the fields. Oh. It's a way of trying to say, if we're serious about thinking about how resistance happens, what politics looks like, how movements get built. It's a question not just looking at the sort of broad scale headlines of struggle, but also the way in which everyday forms of resistance might to some degree help build up a kind of confidence amongst 
working class people, amongst oppressed people, that lays the conditions for, helps to make broader forms of struggle possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's an important gendered aspect to this mm-hmm. question too, right? I'm thinking of Victoria Law's mm-hmm. wonderful book on women in prison and the yeah. ways in which women are particularly likely mm-hmm. to use these more subtle kinds of protest because exactly. um, the sort of masculinist heroics of prison mm-hmm. rebellions are yep. less available to them. Yep. Next in the series, we'll hear about the rehabilitative big house phase of resistance to prison, and then, arising in the 1980s, the modern warehouse period of mass incarceration. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.